Welcome to Unboxed. I'm your host, Connie Nam, the founder of Astrid and Mew. In these conversations, I speak to the founders of some of the most innovative, bold, and exciting businesses to discover the person behind the brand and what it took for them to build their empires. My guest today is David Abramovich, founder and CEO of cult coffee brand Grind. A struggle a lot of founders face is trying to be the manager everyone wants you to be. But the evolution of David's business and life is a refreshing view on how adaptable entrepreneurs need to be. Hi, David. Hello. Welcome to my studio. Welcome to our podcast. It's lovely. Thank you for having me. So nice to have you again. I had you on in 2020. You talked a lot about your, I guess, personal life and background. So we'll probably keep that very short and really talk about your new developments in the business because there's been huge changes. So aside from being the founder of Grind, who is David? Okay. It's nice to be doing it face to face this time as well, isn't it? Not uh, not through Zoom. Um, yeah, so my name's David. I'm 38 now, which is frightening. Live in East London, have two small babies, one and three. Um, as you can imagine, my life is basically running the business and looking after the babies. But outside of that, you know, I like to try and have as much fun and travel and go on holiday as much as possible, basically ski as much as possible. And that's about it, to be honest. No, that sounds great. Yeah, I mean, there's not that much time for anything else at this point. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm hoping, yeah. like, in another 10 years, we might get some time back for some other things. Yeah, and you've achieved so much since the last time I, I met you. And Grind has really taken a different stride, hasn't it, as a business? You've launched the machines, capsules, you're in all of the sew houses around the globe, and you've also acquired or made an MA yes. acquisition. Yeah, yeah, so tell me all about it. My God, so much has happened. I um, I was catching up with one of my investors this morning who I haven't spoken to for six weeks. And it's like an hour of just updates in six weeks. But like, I think people don't, people sometimes don't realize like how quickly scale-ups move and how like how quickly things can change. But no, you know, a huge amount has happened since since 2020. So I think I think when we last spoke, you know, we were nine months post lockdown or something, and our direct to consumer business where we uh, sell coffee pods to people through our website had really taken off. We'd done a big funding round. We just, I think at that time, we must have just recently closed a 22 million pound funding round. And yeah, the business has really changed a lot since then. So, you know, going into the pandemic, we were 99% of our revenue was through our high street stores, which obviously were then closed down. Um, Now the high street represents about a third of our business. So um, another third is from our website and our direct consumer business, which is equal in size now to our high street business, which is crazy from a standing start in, in 2020. And then kind of even more crazy is that our grocery and wholesale um, business from a standing start of you know less than a year is now equal again in size to those other two parts of the business. So I guess we've really changed from like a high street focus chain to a, a multi-channel coffee yeah, business wow. now. So when you raised the 22 million, was that the strategy you set out to the investors or did that pivot constantly? Um, I think, look, whenever you do a fundraise, it's a moment in time and you agree a plan. And, you know, to some extent, you're always held to that plan. And certainly you look back and compare, your, I'm sure you know what it's like, you look back yeah. and you compare yourself to that plan. But I think everyone understands that the plan changes and yeah. you reforecast quarterly at least and new opportunities are presenting themselves all the time and some stuff doesn't work out. So look, I think the strategy is broadly the same, but obviously things have worked really well and things have worked less well. And, and that's just kind of how it goes. Yeah, absolutely. And what about the acquisition? 
Tell, yeah. tell me about the acquisition, the rationale, and how, how you're integrating. Yeah, so so really exciting to, you know, do our first proper piece of kind of M&A, if you like. So um, we acquired a company called Bottle Shot, which is a, a canned coffee company. Um, and that was led by uh, Annie, Charlotte, and um, Leo. And Annie and Leo subsequently joined the team. So you kind of all female founder team, which is really nice. Um, they, um, they'd been going for two or three years and they'd really got underneath the skin of like, how do you make super high quality canned coffee, which is surprisingly hard. Like it's not just a case of, you know, you put some coffee and some milk in a can and off you go. It's really quite a technical process. And they'd invested in a manufacturing facility and helped that manufacturing facility to, to make changes and to scale up, to, to deliver it. But the thing that they didn't really have was a brand. And they'd struggled to get traction with uh, with the grocery chains because you know they would go and see the they would go and see Sainsbury's or whoever, and you know everyone would do the taste test and we're like, oh, this tastes so much better than the stuff from the big chains. We love it, but you know when you go to grocery, your mind is largely already made up before you walk through the door about the kind of brands you're going to buy. Mm-hmm. Um, so they they'd struggled a little bit with that, and so I'd met Annie um, several years before, and she kind of just called me out of the blue and said, you know, can we meet up? I said, fine, yeah, yeah. When I meet, when I met up for a coffee or something, and she basically pitched me, um, look, we've got this manufacturing, we've got this super high quality product, but we don't really have a brand. You've got an amazing brand, but you're not really um, taking canned coffee very seriously. You're not really doing it at a big scale, and I don't understand why you're not. And also, have you been doing it at all? Yeah, so we had been doing it, um, but it was you know, the cans were costing us a lot to manufacture. We were doing it in small scale, only really for us and for Soho House. Um, And we hadn't really understood, to be honest, we hadn't understood the size of the opportunity in grocery and how big it was. Like, so for example, in in grocery, um, the canned ready to drink coffee segment is more than twice the size of the coffee pog segment. So it's huge. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's huge. So it's a massive opportunity. And she basically pitched me and like, to be honest, exactly what she pitched ended up happening pretty much. Like, obviously, we had to iron out the details, but, you know, credit to her for, yeah, for finding a, smart a way. Cookie. Yeah, super smart. And, and she now runs our entire grocery and, and B2B kind of division. Wow. And she's doing an amazing job. Yeah, and, and you've got, and building you, a team. You've got a division head who's an entrepreneur. Yeah, and, 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 and you know, plus. yeah, and she's amazing. And, and as part of that, they'd signed a deal for, for, for them and now us to become. This a supplier to M&S as well for their canned coffee. So that's a huge uh, yeah. revenue driver and a huge uh, volume driver, which allows us to be producing cans at a very large volume. So that de- that contract with M&S was also kind of a part of the deal. Yeah, that's um, so interesting because yeah. we're probably at similar size in terms of revenue and like number of people and things. And I wouldn't necessarily have thought about M&A as a, I guess a small business, but yeah, you've yeah. thought really big thinking like, I'm going to acquire this company. Has M&A like always been a part of your strategy or was it quite like opportunistic? It's completely opportunistic. Um, it was, you know, it was as a result of, of Annie getting in touch yeah. and then, you know, going through the process of opening our eyes to the size of the opportunity. And it was perfect timing because we'd just taken the decision as like loads of direct consumer brands now are going into retail, right? If you look in the US, they're all trying to get into Walmart. If you look here, they're all trying to get into whatever is the relevant retail channel. And we'd kind of recognized that. And so we launched in Waitrose recently and, and we're launching into other grocers with our own branded grind products. And so really she came along with the bottle shot thing at the perfect time yeah. because it was just as we were looking for someone to run our grocery division. Yeah. Um, and it's like, well, you know, 
here's a person that's clearly yeah, that's can do a great job of that, knows everything, and also we can do this as part of an acquisition. So no, but look, we're we're actually like we're we're looking at a couple of other things now, and actually it seems that there's quite a lot of appetite for M and A. You know, I think as funding sources have have dried up and as the economy's got more difficult and interest rates have, have risen, I think people are finding it harder to to raise money and keep going when they're yeah. kind of very early stage. And so I think naturally they're kind of getting in touch with other people who are potentially buying businesses. So look, I think I think you have to be super careful with M and A. Um, you have to make sure that you know values are really aligned. Um, you know, outlooks are really aligned. But it can you know so far we've launched our own grind canned products using all of the knowledge and manufacturing built up by them. It's been really, really successful. There's been an amazing reception to the cans. We're selling way more than we thought we would. They're going to be coming online in, in grocery channels kind of over the next six to 12 months. So it's been, you know, so far, oh, touch amazing. wood, it's been, uh, it's yeah, been really, really successful. Thank you. You know, like M&A integration is notorious for being really hard to implement for big yeah. companies. But I yeah. wonder what it is like for like small and medium businesses like us. Yeah, look, I think the advantage is that, you know, big companies come with hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands of employees. You know, we only we only took two employees over. So it was a very small from that perspective. Yeah. But they bought with them, you know, a big a big supply contract in terms of um, the M&S piece um, and also just a huge amount of, of expertise and entrepreneurialism that is yeah. now, you know, they're now able to do a great job for us but with the resources and the brand yeah. of a bigger and better known yeah. business rather than having to, try and do everything themselves as yeah. they were so, previously. So you'd say it's more about the people that you're bringing yeah, on. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's all about it's yeah, all about sense. the people. You know, and credit to Annie, she got all of her shareholders, um, all of their money back, um, mm. you know, and a bit more. And, yeah. you know, she's, it's a good deal for her personally. And, and she now gets to to grow a division with inside grind, um, which, you know, I think she's really enjoying. So, no, it's been, it's been really good so far. But yeah. I would certainly be... I would remain cautious about about future ones, and I, I think the more people, yeah. the bigger the the bigger the challenge. Yeah. Just integrating culture. Yeah. I think what are some of the key piece. considerations you have on the back of your mind? I think that culture piece, like the culture at Grind, is is so amazing, and I don't know entirely how we created it, but you know, I think I think culture takes you know a decade to build, and you can destroy it in in ten minutes yeah. with, with one wrong action, right? Like it's yeah. it's much faster to destroy it than yeah. create it. Yeah. So one wrong uh, hire, yeah, could just yeah destroy exactly it. Yeah. right. A few wrong decisions, you, you know. So I, I would always kind of start there and just go, yeah, is this yeah. going to be additive to yeah. our to our culture and to our brand? And if yeah, it is, yeah. great. But equally, like I think it's important that it's never just me saying we're doing this. Like, yeah. like the entire senior team were bought into the idea and excited about the acquisition. Yeah, that's and so interesting. Yeah. yeah, you know, everyone was incentivized. Well, everyone wanted to make it work. They weren't necessarily incentivized to make it work, but everyone was excited about it and everyone wanted to make it yeah. work. Whereas I think if it's being forced upon the team, it's never going to happen, right? It's never yeah. going to work, right? Yeah, it's never going to be successful. Absolutely. So interesting because last episode I was talking to Nicola, founder of Neom, and she said culture is the most important thing and her biggest mistakes were hiring the wrong people. Yeah. 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 Have you had that, that like written down somewhere? What is the culture? No, we haven't actually. And I, we've, we've tried a couple of times and we've had, I'm sure as you have done, you know, every now and again you find yourself, someone's running some exercise to try and, define our values and all of these and look we've done it and you know we've got the employee handbooks and we've got yeah. various things but I think 
I think it's very hard to try and write it down. Yeah. I, I think you have to live it, really. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And so how do you vet the people? Yeah, it's so, it's so hard. And, and, and it always has to change as well, right? And so we recently, um, our head of people who's um, amazing, has been with us forever, she's gone on maternity leave. And so we had to, we've had to hire a replacement. And during the interview process for the maternity cover, it became really clear to me how... I was, you know, we got it down to two people and I was basically choosing between two different people who were just completely different skill sets. And I think one of them, three years ago, I definitely would have hired because they were much more of a kind of hospitality, kind of worked their way from the bottom up to the top. You know, that kind of yeah. hustler, grafter, worked their way up from a very low level job to a high level job in a big business previously. Whereas the alternative candidate was someone who was kind of much more measured, um, a little bit more corporate, had been part of bigger businesses. And actually, you know, three years ago, I would have said, no, 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 this person's too corporate and not been in the right background. We need to go with the kind of the, the hustler. But actually we went, we went with the alternative candidate in the end, because I think you have to recognize that the business is changing, the business is bigger, the headcount is bigger, things are, are moving on. And actually, I think it's very dangerous to continue to hire people like yourself and or people like the existing culture because then you just end up with all of the same people. Yeah. And actually what we've seen with um, Annie and Leo coming in is a slightly different culture that they did bring. And although they have fit in really nicely, they've also challenged us on a lot of things and they work differently in yeah. some ways. And so I think the culture has to evolve yeah. and you have to drive yeah. it forwards. No, it can't always remain yeah. the same. I, I guess it depends on the definition of culture because I beg to differ. Okay. Because I think you should bring on people with different skill sets, yeah, yeah, but absolutely. still with the same culture. But I think we're talking about the same thing probably. Yeah. Like I'm talking about a culture that doesn't change like values. You're talking about like skill sets probably. Yeah, I guess I'm talking yeah. about working yeah. culture and working practices yeah. as opposed yeah. to cult. Yeah, completely. Like the, the same values remain from day one you, you know it's the kind of people we want the kind of attitude we want I've always treated everyone like a grown-up you, you know as much as possible like you're a grown-up I'm not gonna t you don't ask permission to go to the dentist like you know we're not a school act like a grown-up get yeah. get the things done that you need to get done in your job and you, you know it's about what people do when no one's looking yeah. not when everyone's yeah. looking and, and you so still want the big company people to come and be that right because yeah. you sometimes find big company people come in and they're like at, like waiting for directions. Yeah, exactly. Um, waiting to be told what to do. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm, I'm not here to tell you what to do. Yeah, yeah. I'm here to create an environment where you've got the resources and the people and the understanding and you figure out what to go and do next. Because if I knew what to do, I would do your job myself. Okay, I can't do everyone's job myself. But like, I'm looking for you to tell me what to do next, not the other way around. Like, I'm here to listen to you make sure there are no roadblocks in your way, give you guidance on, you know, are we going down this path or that path? But ultimately, like, you have to, you as the senior leader have to walk that path, not follow me down that path. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I completely agree. You need to hire people with different skill sets, someone who can bring in different things. Because it's I'm, hard, right? Yeah, it's really hard. Because, like, I'm finding, like, as a scale-up, I think two, three years ago, I really struggled because, you know, we had all these amazing people who are so entrepreneurial, but we couldn't get that structure in place. And yeah. I didn't know how to do that. Yeah. So I had to hire people who came from bigger company backgrounds, but, you know, not too corporate. So yeah. someone who can integrate really yeah. well, but who can also equally do that. Yeah. But sometimes... Sometimes you kind of want to be five or ten percent more corporate, right? Like you need that. Yeah, because yeah, that's, yeah. You need the structure. Yeah, that's growing up. That's putting structures yeah. in space, and that's like, you know, we we we've got too much going on now 
to just wing it all the time like yeah. we used to. Like yeah. I do everything then at the last minute. Then everyone gets confused. Minute. And everyone gets stressed, right? Yeah. Whereas actually, and it's so interesting because I think sometimes as the CEO, when especially when, you've, when you're the founder and you've seen it from the beginning, you're almost scared to put structure in place because you think, it's going to, well, I am anyway. I don't know. You tell me. Oh, no, I, I am yeah, too, yeah, because yeah. I'm always like, I always prided ourselves in being like scrappy, yeah, nimble, exactly. adaptable. Yeah. And we don't want to lose that essence, right? Exactly. And you wonder, you worry that like, if there's too much structure in place, the people who are great are going to get annoyed because, mm. you know, and that, but actually whenever I talk to people, they, they say the opposite. Uh, you know, they're happy to have a bit more structure and yeah. actually they want more direction and yeah. more deadlines and more understanding yeah, of yeah. Then priorities. Then they can, they can manage their life. Because they can manage their life and they can also feel less stressed, which yeah. is just so important yeah. to people. Yeah, um, I completely agree. Because when it's like, when it's all about adaptability, everything's at the whim of, I guess, us. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, look, I'm like, you know, you imagine that, giving them a list and putting it in the right order for them and saying, do this, then this, and then this, and these are the priorities. And you, know, you imagine that can feel to me like I'm micromanaging. But actually, I think when done in the right way, it's just providing guidance yeah. and providing clarity. And people yeah. do, people crave clarity. Like I think typically yeah, yeah, yeah. when you ask employees what they don't like about any business, it's like they don't know where they're supposed to be going or what they're supposed to be doing. They don't know clearly who they report to or why, and, and yeah. they don't really know how they're being judged. Yeah. Um, you know, in terms of what their bonus incentives yeah, yeah, are yeah. or what does it good yeah. even look like? And I think yeah. if you can try Yeah, it's and, confusing. They yeah, want to know where they're heading. They just want to know where they're at, yeah. right? Like what I'm, they're working on. Yeah, exactly. Um and, but it's hard, you know, it's hard to provide that. Yeah, to yeah. Everyone. I mean, it's also not our skill set, right? Because no. we're entrepreneurs, we're not exactly. managers. Yeah. And I guess this is why you look at Silicon Valley tech businesses and they all end up being run by CEOs who are very, very different yeah. to the founders, right? Yeah. So I guess at some point it comes time to hand the mantle over to a professional CEO. Yeah. Would you would you ever do that? CEO. Are you ready for that moment? Definitely not now because we're still um, <laughs> yeah. we're still being scrappy and entrepreneurial and we're still building and hustling. But yeah, look, I'm I'm sure at, at some point that that may make sense, right? Like well, none of us can do this forever. This episode is sponsored by Payhawk. Growing a business from a startup to a scale-up comes with many challenges. One way to solve this is to introduce effective systems at the right time. Payhawk, a corporate card and expenses management solution for scale-ups, have literally transformed many lives at Astrid and Mew since implementing earlier this year. To simplify, Payhawk combines company cards, reimbursable expenses, accounts payable, and seamless accounting software integrations into a single product that can be used globally. In this episode, David and I are discussing the evolving org chart and the structures needed as the businesses scale. Whilst building out your team, the last thing you want to worry about is who is spending on what and keeping a tab on your cash flow. This is where Payhawk comes in. The systems has customizable expenses approval flows, and more importantly, everything is so intuitive and can be done through an app. So you don't need to be a finance whiz to use this. Tell me about how your organizational structure evolved over time since, like, I guess pre-COVID. I guess COVID always becomes like a like yeah. definition of an era. So like during COVID and also post-COVID, especially because your business has like evolved yeah. a lot. Yeah, I think I think kind of COVID is, is such a milestone for everyone, but even more for us, just because the business changed so much, as as we talked about last time and a little bit earlier, it you know, changed so much during that period. But I guess, you know, we were a much simpler business before. We basically had 
a small team at the top of the business and, you know, someone who ran the restaurant business and the high street business. And, you know, that was all we focused on. And yeah, sure, we were doing other things and we were, we were doing a bit of wholesale and a bit of retail, but really it was, it was all about, okay, what was the revenue from all of the high street stores this week? What was the margins? What was the labor? Where's the next store? Where's the next fundraise? And what's the other next things we're doing to keep positioning ourselves as an amazing brand? Whereas now we're in, you know, we're on the high street, we're at home, we're workplace, we've got manufacturing division, you know, we have a 20,000 square foot roastery with 30 people there all day making stuff. We supply, you know, we supply people all over the world. We maintain all of the coffee machines ourselves. You know, we have a three or four person maintenance team maintaining our equipment and so house equipment across the UK. You know, there's so many, we have this whole grocery thing now, like there's so many different parts of it. So as that evolves, you have to, you know, find a way to evolve the structure. And, and the way that the way that I've done that is to basically, you know, have a senior leadership team where someone is in charge of each of those verticals and then to have kind of pools of resource that they can pull in. So, you know, a finance team that clearly works across all parts of it. Uh, the roastery itself, which is, you know, involved in supplying all parts of it in some way or another. They manufacture all of the different products for all of the different channels. And then a brand team. So, you know, our brand team used to be wound up just in the restaurant piece, and then it was wound up in the website, but we've pulled that out now. And again, that's just, you know, anything you need from a menu to a TV ad, to a tube poster, to creatives, to boxes, to packaging. Yeah, so much, as you know, there's so much of that stuff, yeah, right? Yeah, boxes, absolutely. packaging, like, yeah. you know, that whole thing is... It's just a resource pool that the rest of the business can can build on. And then, you know, basically, you know, myself, our, our CFO and our CMO, so, you know, Chief Finance Officer, Chief Marketing Officer, we kind of sit above all of those people running their own divisions. And that, that's how it's, that's how we've got it at the moment. I don't know if that's right or, or wrong. That sounds sensible. How many people yeah. do you have in the head office, roughly? 50? <laughs> 50? Yeah, yeah, something like that. Probably 30 in the head office and 25 or so in the roastery. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, maybe slightly more, actually. What was your biggest lesson throughout this whole journey? Because I would imagine, like, you know, being from a startup to now, like, a scale-up with, like, an acquisition. Yeah. I there think, must have been a lot of lessons learned oh and mistakes. God, so, many, so many lessons, so many mistakes. I think it was really hard to, to just... To, the pandemic was hard in terms of what it did to online sales and, like, the huge peaks and the troughs and the, and the lockdowns and the opening ups and the closing again. And, you know, you, there was a period where everyone thought this, you know, we'd fast forwarded 10 years in e-commerce, right? That was the, that was the chat. And you saw the lines in the Sunday times or wherever, right? Every, they, everyone was printing the same things like five years of e-commerce growth in one year. And actually that's basically all unwound since then, right? Like it's all gone back to how it was. So I think lots of people, us included, got carried away with, okay, we've grown so much on direct-to-consumer, the growth is going to keep going like this forever. Um, so that means over-ordering stock and, you know, maybe over-resourcing and stuff like that. And actually, we've been lucky because, you know, we've never we've never trimmed back on headcount. We haven't needed to because we didn't, we didn't go too hard on that. And, you know, we've, we've managed all that the areas where we did overall the stock, that's kind of evened itself out by now anyway. But like, I think trying to judge that, particularly when you then raise lots of money on high hopes of 
really fast growth, which we've, we have delivered growth, but we haven't delivered it as fast and as big as maybe we thought we would in when we last spoke, December 21. Um, and so, so just managing, managing everyone's expectations about all of this and, and just managing the unknown, right? Like none of us knew what 2023 looked like in 2021 is the reality. Like, yeah, yeah. were we going to be, you know, and again, work from home. So, you know, work from home has a huge impact on our, our high street business and the makeup of the week has completely changed. So Tuesday, Wednesdays, Thursdays, we're trading better than ever. Mondays and Fridays, we're down compared to 2019. And Thursdays is absolutely the new Friday as far as the city is concerned. So again, just the whole business adapting in a non... It's, 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 I, I guess... If you zoom out, it's just been a really non-steady state, right? And yeah. I look back now and I think... Yeah, even now. Yeah, there's so many now, variables going so on. So many variables. Like I, I kind of look back, I'm sure you do as well, and you think 2015 to 2019, with hindsight, was so stable. Like, okay, Brexit aside, yeah, that was a, you know, that was a shock and that created problems. But apart from that one variable, everything was kind of broadly yeah. the same. Now you've got, you know, cost of living crisis, interest rates, energy, utilities business rates, you know, costs just getting hammered everywhere. Work from home, no work from home, yeah. all of that stuff. So I yeah. think, you know, it's hard. You're always trying to make decisions six months, 12 months in advance. And you're basically trying to predict the future all the time, right? I mean, every time you do a forecasting exercise, you're trying to predict the future. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, I'm yeah, sure and aside from the economic environment, there is all these like media landscape changing, right? Like Instagram and then TikTok and yeah. all of these things. Speaking of, like you're so good at um, these PR stunts. I know there was this George Clooney stunt. Yeah. I don't know whether we're like allowed to talk about this, but yeah, no, no, we um, are. Can, can you like tell me briefly about your marketing strategy and how do you come up with these ideas? You're right because you, you know Instagram and the effectiveness of Instagram ads with in the context of obviously the, the changes in the algorithm between Apple and Facebook, that's become difficult. And so, so we've therefore had to go much more, and actually I'm glad we did, into tube ads and posters. And we recently did our first TV ad as well, which ran in June and is running on in September and October. So we've had to learn fast about these kind of more traditional forms of advertising and marketing. And then the stunts are just things that we try and, you know, we try and challenge ourselves to do one a month if we can. And it's just silly ideas, really. Like, yeah. there's no, like... I really love the small billboard. Yeah, the idea. small billboard one was, was, cute. was cool, right? And it's just, you just chuck these ideas out there and you try them. And some of them really work and some of them get absolutely no traction at all. But it's all about just trying to do things, you know, we talk about, let's do things that Nespresso can't do. Because, you know, Nespresso is the dominant force in, in coffee pods. They sell billions of dollars worth of these capsules a year. We're selling, you know, a tiny fraction of that, but we want to grow into their their territory, right? So let's do things that they can't do. Let's poke at them a little bit. Let's tease them a little bit. And let's let's have some fun with it, right? And I think it's interesting because the ones that people recite back to you always tend to be the fun ones yeah. and the, the funny ones or the mm. interesting ones. They're the ones that get quoted back to you. So it really just comes down to just having a brand team that's got some slightly quirky people in it. Yeah. And, you know, there's some really quirky yeah, people yeah, in our yeah. brand team and they're amazing. And they just come <laughs> up with these random ideas that I could never have come up with. And normally it's me reining them back. Yeah. Going, no, 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 we can't do that. We're going to get sued if we do I that. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> What's been your favorite campaign? The thing that I've prob- has probably been the most fun has actually been the tube car panels, which I realize is not maybe as like interesting 
as, oh, we put George, a George Clooney lookalike into our store at St Pancras. But actually the tube car panels, they just reach so many people. Mm. They're so effective. How did you measure and it? And so you, um, basically you look at, so when anyone purchases on our website, there's a survey after, afterwards, how did you hear about us? And it presents, you know, 10 options or something yeah. in a randomized order. It's really important for it to be randomized. Uh, and you just, and you know, so people click tube ad or I went to one yeah. of your stores or I visited one of your trucks yeah. or wherever. Yeah. And you just measure the movements in that, right? So same for TV, same for everything yeah, else. Yeah. And then you can also measure the uplifting sales in London versus the yeah. rest of the country. Cause obviously yeah. the tube is only in London. So yeah. if- So you don't put a discount code? No, uh, we have tried that before. And actually we, I think we're doing that again now, but I think you need to not think of, we don't try and think of out of home advertising as direct response. It's yeah. not, it's not an ad that you can click on yeah, and yeah. click through and purchase. Yeah. It's about uplift for the yeah, brand. It's yeah. about recognize, you know, making the brand more recognizable and therefore making your digital ads more effective. Yeah. Because if you if you think about like our behavior as a consumer, yeah. you don't just look at a billboard and just click and buy no, exactly. immediately, right? Exactly. But next time you see a Facebook ad or an Instagram ad, or next time you see it in a supermarket, you might be more inclined to go with that brand because you you feel like you've learned a little bit about it and you trust it because you've seen it outside. And we still, yeah. you know, we still believe that if we've seen something on TV or we've seen something on billboards, it must be more credible and more trustworthy yeah. than a brand that we haven't, which makes sense because, you know, anyone can create a brand in their living room now, right? In two yeah, seconds yeah. with an Instagram account. So actually seeing it gives credibility, which helps yeah, with the conversion absolutely. progress. But the tube ads are good because you get, you know, you, you get to have a little bit of fun. We've had some really funny ones and <laughs> some really cheeky and interesting ones. And they're the, they're the things that get recited back to me all the time. And they're the things that people say, you know, yeah. oh, grind. Oh yeah, I see you on the yeah. tube all the time. And were they the ones that gave um, more uplift versus like the yeah. more traditional ones? Yeah, and actually like, as we've played with it, if you try lifestyle images on there and stuff like that, nothing is effective as just pink, a pink panel with some black text on it and a grind tin and good text. That is just the most effective, mm. like clean communication. And you look at, you look at ads that are trying to do so many things. You just yeah. you just need a punchline, right? Because yeah, people are yeah. people are doing a lot with their lives. Like they're busy. They're not getting on the tube to check yeah. out the advertising, right? So you've got a split second to kind of make that impact. Yeah, that makes sense. Have you done much out of home or? Yeah, yeah. So we're doing fly posting right now, are and you? they're quite effective in driving yeah. traffic. So we're trying to drive traffic into our store. So we're yeah. doing it around the store openings yeah, yeah, yeah. regionally and things, and we measure uplift of like two weeks prior versus yeah. like two weeks after, yeah. and it's been really effective. Yeah. It's a leap of faith, though, right? All yeah. of this stuff. It's just a leap of faith, and yeah. it took it took us a while to get comfortable with, you know instead of spending 50,000 pounds on, on Facebook ads, let's put that 50,000 yeah. pounds or 100,000 pounds into posters or tube ads because yeah. it's, big, it's big amounts of money and you don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. But I think as you, as you do it more, you get more comfortable, right? And yeah. there's a reason that Apple, the world's most valuable company, still covers every city in the world in billboards, right? Because yeah. you have to remain top of mind and you have to keep reinforcing yeah your position yeah and, you know. although i want to make a side note because a lot of our listeners are early stage founders yeah i feel like for us it might work really well because we have a level of awareness but if you're just starting out i'm not sure how effective these billboards and um i yeah. don't know if i post string would be no I completely agree yeah. and that's not the obvious place to put if you're thinking about where to put your next thousand pounds not yeah. your next fifty thousand pounds yeah then there's no way you should be putting it into billboards yeah. right like you should be putting that into effectively 
routes for free customer acquisition yeah. or into your product or into gifting your product and, yes. and things like that. What would you do if you had thousand pounds? And which you were uh, you were a very early stage. What which am I sector? Selling? Mm, okay, jewelry. Oh. <laughs> Give you a challenge. I mean, <laughs> it has to be gifting it to the right people, yeah. right? Like it, it just has to be. Yeah. Right? So how much of cost price stock does that buy me? Okay, well, you know, the things I'm giving cost me 50 pounds to manufacture. Yeah. So I've got 20 goes at giving it to people who yeah. are going to promote it for me. Yeah. Choose the right 20 people and then as best you can, make sure that those 20 people are going to do something with it. Yeah. But I think it's really important never to, you know, when we gift stuff, we don't ask for anything in return. You know, we don't contact you and say, oh, we'll gift you a, an espresso pod machine if you agree to post yeah. it. Because I just find that very yeah, kind of transactional. Bad, yeah, it leaves a it bad, leaves taste. A bad taste. Yeah. And people try and do it to me all yeah, the time yeah. as well. And I'm just like, yeah. yeah, and you don't know what that person's going to do behind the scenes, right? If no, you didn't ask, exactly. they'll probably tell their friends. Exactly. Like, who will also buy it. Whereas like, if you tell them to do something, they might be like, oh, like, I don't want to do that. Yeah, it just becomes very transactional. Yeah. And a gift is supposed to be the opposite of a transaction, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. It's supposed to be a gift. Yeah, that's such a good point. Yeah. Building relationship yeah, with your so, customers. You know, I'm like, do you know what? This person looks great. They make yeah. great content. Yeah. Just send them a machine. I'm yeah. sure they'll post about it if they like it. And if they don't yeah. post about it, they'll show people it in their kitchen. And yeah. you know, that will that revenue will come back to us eventually, one yeah. way or another. Just be selective, as selective as possible with the 20 theoretical people that I yeah, can yeah, yeah. I can give my jewelry yeah. to. I love that. I love how you wouldn't ask them to post about it. And no, it's, we've uh, we've never done that. It becomes more of a relationship. Yeah, look, obviously if you if you're paying an influencer, an actual cash fee to do something, then fine. You probably there needs yeah, it's to be not an, a cash gift. Yeah, they, they need to be an agreement about okay, well, what are both sides going to do? But if you're just gifting product, I mean, my wife is a is a makeup artist, and you know she's she does makeup for for amazing people, and you, you know my my hallway is like the Royal Mail sorting office sometimes. <laughs> like it's just it's um it's relentless. I feel yeah. like I need like a cardboard recycling facility in my back garden. <laughs> what does she do with all the gifting? I guess like for someone who's trying to give to someone yeah. like your wife, like how do you stand out from the crowd? If she posted a picture of everything she received, A, she would do nothing else except take pictures yeah. of stuff and post it because it's time consuming, right? Even like to take a nice picture of some boxes of makeup takes some time. And, you know, and B, she would bore everyone to death with the amount of stuff that she mm, receives in the yeah. post. So, you know, I look at them coming through and I can immediately tell which <laughs> ones are going to be interesting to her. Mm. And I think it's the ones that are generous. Yeah. So when she feels like the brand has sent her a lot of money's worth of product, I think she's more inclined to do it because she yeah. feels like she's actually receiving something of value rather than you know, here's one box with one lip gloss in it. Yeah. It's like, am I going to really bother? Like, it wasn't even worth opening the box for that. <laughs> and then also just when people are a bit more creative and a bit more interesting yeah. than just the product in a box. So, you know, it often comes with flowers or other presents which are nothing to do with the gift itself or things that are related to it. And, and it tends to be the ones who have actually taken the time to build a bit of a relationship with her rather than just cold sending her stuff where she's actually interested in the brand and there's been a bit of dialogue then she will always do it as opposed to like i think just blind sending stuff to people who haven't shown an interest in your brand is probably not 
going to be that effective. Yeah, it makes so much. Yeah, it makes so much sense when you talk about it and when you humanize the yeah. influencers and, and the makeup artists or like these um, yeah. personalities. Yeah, I mean these but, people who have got millions of followers. I mean, imagine what it's like. Imagine yeah. the amount of stuff they get sent every day. Yeah, so like, they must have people just opening the stuff. Yeah, I mean, it, or it must be a full time job for someone to open yeah. it. So it's just how do you cut through that noise, right? And how how do you get them excited about it? And that's why you got to find influencers that are a good fit for your brand because just because they work for someone else doesn't mean they're a good fit for your brand but ideally when the person that we send something to opens our coffee machine we make their day they're like oh my god i wanted one of these anyway i was going to buy one of these anyway and now i've been sent one this is amazing and i'm now going to do a five minute video of unboxing it and playing with it and just raving about how great it is off their own back that's the ideal kind of moment right because you know, all we did was have to send them a machine. Yeah. And you get all of this amazing content and you make someone happy as well, right? And and you just know that that person is going to show every person that comes to their house or their flat for the next year their new coffee machine. And that's way better than, you know, Instagram ads. Yeah, absolutely. And speaking of your wife, when we spoke privately, you said you do a lot of childcare while, you know, she's a celebrity makeup artist, so she travels abroad. That I felt was, it shouldn't be, but was very refreshing coming from a male founder, right? Because you're also very busy. So how do you balance all of this and also, you know, do childcare and split that housework equally? Yeah, it's a lot. And, you know, and her her work is all over the place. So like some weeks she'll, you know, have three or four days off in a row with nothing to do and she gets and loads of time with the kids which is amazing and then you know I'll cram in loads of stuff but then other times she I mean she always leaves she, she very often leaves the house at 5 a.m to go to some shoot so that means you know it's up to me to get everyone up and get the kids to nursery luckily my younger one has just started going to nursery now so that makes life a lot easier and look it's just a constant you know it feels like one big long diary meeting half the time. <laughs> it's like who's doing what where. Yeah. And look, we're lucky. You know, we have nanny, we have a nat, grandma and all that kind of stuff. And, and I guess I'm lucky in a way because like, if I don't have stuff in my diary, I can, you know, do what I need to do with them in the morning and then go into work a bit later or come home a bit earlier. And, you, you know, because my job is is completely and utterly continuous. Like it's never... The day never starts and ends. It just goes on and on and on forever. So you can squeeze stuff in as founders. I think it's really important never to moan or never to complain because I love what I do and I'm super lucky to have the business. And I created all of my own problems. I like to remind myself <laughs> that, you know, no one gave me this business, right? Like I set out to create it. Yeah. But, you know, can be a lot and it can be all-consuming yeah, and yeah. it can be quite stressful and there are lots of sleepless nights and there's lots of worry. And I think the thing you get back that to me is super valuable is you are in control of your own time. And so that is something that I really, really value about being a CEO, I guess, is yeah. having control over my own yeah. time and, and, you know. But still, you can't ignore the fact that you have a lot of things to juggle, right? I mean, as a female founder, I get asked all the time, how do you balance family and business? Do you ever get asked that as a male founder? No, do you know okay, what? Okay, I'm, I'm going to probably, ask you now. Yeah, probably male founders should get asked that a lot more. I don't think anyone has the answer to this, right? Like, I, I think the answer to this is that you just do your absolute best and you probably, and you certainly don't succeed 100% at balance. Like, anyone who says they do, I don't believe. Like, yeah. I would like to spend more time on lots of things at work than I have time to do. And I'd like to spend more time on lots of things outside of work than I do. And you, you, the idea that you're ever going to achieve 
100% success, I think it's just a fallacy. So I think it's just about just doing your your best to to manage it. And, and the thing that I really struggle with is either doing one thing or the other. So it's like, is this, am I currently at home and not working and, and doing the other piece of the balance? Or am I working now? And, you, you know, I think at the weekends, in the evenings, at night, you know, during the day. So you're integrating everything. That's how you achieve, I guess, quote unquote, balance. Yeah, but I'm not sure say. that's a good thing. Yeah. Because like, it's like, you know, I was supposed to be playing with the kids and I'm responding to Slack messages. And it's, it's that whole thing, right? Or yeah, like it's the yeah. weekend and I'm, I'm supposed to be. Do they you know, know and they ask you not to be on your phone ever? No, they're too small so mm. far, <laughs> one and three, but I'm sure it's coming. Wait another two years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sure it's coming. And But, you know, it's... It's tricky. We try and go away as, as much as we as we can, which is less than I'd like, but still like for me it's just that is I feel like that resets everything. Yeah. Then, Do you manage to switch off while you're away? I've got much better at it actually. Yeah. yeah. And I and I try and force myself to kind of put my phone in the in the hotel safe and, and leave it for five hours or something. Oh, that's such um, a good idea. Yeah. And just like leave it for Do five hours. Do you feel hours. itchy? Yeah. Well, yeah. But it wears <laughs> off you kind of get used to it um, and you get you can get better at it. And actually you just have to realize that, do you know what, at this point, like it's not like it used to be in the early days. Like if I can't go away for a week and not have to do much, then I'm not doing a very good job of, yeah. of running the business. And they probably enjoy the silence yeah, of five absolutely. hours. So what's on your mind now? We're trying to take our first steps internationally at the moment. So we haven't, you know, I know you guys have got some stores in New York. You know, we haven't, we haven't done anything permanent yet, but we did we did something in, in LA with Sewer House for a year. We're looking at some other stuff in New York. We have our our US website and having some early stage US grocery conversations. So we're kind of tentatively sticking a toe across the pond, if you like. So we're trying to do that, but obviously in the right way and in a measured way and, and not spending too much money on that. And then, you know, really it's about figuring out how do we build and become bigger and bigger, but while also improving the quality of everything we do. So improving the quality of the brand, improving the quality of the product, quality of all of our communications in, in all of its forms. And I think we are succeeding in that at the moment, but it gets harder and harder. And you know, some parts of it get easier because you're doing things at a scale. So, you know, our head of coffee just spent a month in Brazil um, buying coffee. So you have a head of coffee. That yeah, makes yeah. sense, but that yeah, sounds yeah, yeah. like a really cool job. Yeah, no, he's amazing. He's basically a walking coffee tasting machine. As in... Such a cool job. Yeah, I, I know it's amazing, right, to think about these jobs that you just don't even know exist. But, you know, he's a bit like a sommelier mm. for coffee. So he's actually calibrated to taste and score coffee out of 100. And if you put him in a room with other people with the same qualification, of which there's only about 500 in the world... They will all score random cups of coffee the same out of 100 to within a point or two. So they'll all say, this is a 92 or this is a 94 or this is, a, which is just incredible, right? To yeah, just be able yeah. to taste coffee and do that. But, you know, he's really the palate of grind. Mm. So I kind of take him everywhere yeah. with me where there's anything that remotely involves quality of product. So he's just been there for a month and, you know, we're now buying huge quantities of coffee for ourselves to go into cans, to go into solar house locations, to go into grocery. So, you know, the volume has changed dramatically. And actually with that, you're able to have so much more impact. You, you know, we work with uh, one farm called Jaguara in Brazil and we started working with them. They had one farm. They now have seven farms across oh, different parts amazing. of Brazil. We buy 
80 plus percent of their total crop. Um, and, you know, we know them really, really well now. So that's amazing because you can, you know, you can work together and you could end up buying a better quality product from them. And you're less, having a huge impact on the community, yeah, I'd imagine. Exactly. Right? Yeah. And, you know, as a business, we end up paying less because we're buying so much of it and we're trading with them directly. There's no one in the middle taking a cut. So we're buying at a better price. They're receiving a better price. Quality goes up because we work more and more closely with them about, you know, exactly how they're picking it, how they're storing it, how they're drying it. The second it comes off the tree, you can't make it any better, but you can make it a lot worse if you don't do the right things. Um, you know, just down to how it's stored and how it's shipped and how it's wrapped. So, you know, from a business, it gets better. For the consumer, it gets better because they get a better product. And then you can have this huge impact on the, these these valleys in, in Brazil and these these towns and villages where, you know, your, your purchasing is making a huge difference to like the lives of the people there. Yeah, and that's so, I so think, inspiring. Yeah, no, it's amazing. One last question. What's one advice you'd give a young founder? You know, the exciting thing about 2023 is that it's never been easier to start a business, right? It's never been cheaper or faster to start a business with, you know, an Instagram account and a product or a service of some kind that you can ship out. So, you know, I do get frustrated with, um, you know, I'm sure you get 20 emails a day of people saying, hey, can you help me? Can you give me some advice? I think people go into planning kind of overdrive sometimes and they just spend way too long on that and, and look the, the counter argument to this is you should do a really great business plan you should know all of the numbers you should research the market you should do and look for sure you need to do a bit of that but I see people who have been talking about launching their business for three years and I'm like what well, like you could have launched and failed three times yeah. in these three and years. And some people talk about the idea for three years, right? And they just talk about the yeah. idea. And look, there, there have been times where I've been too impulsive and I've been too much just getting on with it and diving in with both feet when maybe I should have been more considered or more measured. And, you know, I think I've got better at that over the years. And I think you do get better that, at that with the experience. But equally, for an early stage founder, you've got nothing to lose. So like what's the great thing about having nothing to lose? Well, it's having nothing to lose. So just go for it. Like, get on with it. Because, you know, there's nothing worse for me than, than than talking for three years about the idea. And my business has become so different to the business that we started. And it got there by trying stuff and, and something's working and something's failing and it evolving and it adapting over time. And you could never have possibly sat at the beginning and mapped this thing out. Like, it's just been a complete story of evolution so just start like I really think you should just start and, and that doesn't you know start as cheaply as possible and as quickly as possible and manage the risks as best you can but ultimately there is always going to be some risk and just get on with it because you'll learn so much more through doing than you will through sitting there and thinking about it yeah I love that just do it just get on yeah. with it. Yeah, like asterisk, <laughs> like be sensible, plan a little bit, don't do anything crazy, don't spend too much money in the first week, etc. You know, a measured approach to just do it, I think, yeah. But measure for a short period of time. Just not too much because you, you cannot predict the future and you cannot work out exactly how this thing is going to go until you try and get some customers and then listen to your customers and do 
most of the things or at least some of the things that they tell you with a heavy dose of, no, we're not going to do that because this is what we're about. And actually, sometimes I need to show the customer what they want as much as they need to tell me what they want. But just the act of getting going, I think, sends you on a path where you are now in survival mode. And it's way better to be existing and in survival mode than not existing and thinking about what the things that might happen are if one day you do exist. Yeah, love it, love it. I feel like I need to start another thing right now. No, no, no. <laughs> Thank you so much, David. That was no so worries. inspiring and so much fun. Thank you for having me again. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to follow the podcast wherever you're listening or watching. You can follow me at Connie Nam, Astrid and Mew at Astrid and Mew, and Unboxed Instagram page at Unboxed underscore Founder Confidential. See you next week.